Um, my name is Jessica. My husband Adam and I are members at the Heights. So now we're going to spend some time in God's Word together now. Um, today's teaching comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, and verses 22 through 26 in the Bible. So I'm just going to be reading verses 22 through 26, okay? The large numbers are the chapters in the Bible, and the small numbers are the verses. So let's hear what God has to speak to us today. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of your word. We ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word today. Help us not to just listen, but to truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Jessica. Thank you uh, for reading Je uh, for us, Jessica. Well, very good morning to you all. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully you guys have some fun plans, uh, I guess, inside. Not that it's really dreary. It's supposed to be a beautiful weekend, but whatever, you know. Really glad to be with you. Uh, before we dive in, I've got one thing that I want to put on your radar, especially if you're new around here. Next weekend, we're hosting our membership class and here's what I want you to hear. If you haven't been to membership class, you need to be there, okay? You need to be there. Um, I'm so excited for this, but one of the things we say all the time, and even Mike set it up here a minute ago, is that we believe that the church is not an event that you attend, but a family that you belong to. Let me say that again. We believe that the church is not an event that you attend where you, you know, sing some, sing some songs, listen to some music, whatever, hear me do kind of like a little song and dance and go, oh, wow, that was good, or I didn't like that, or whatever, you know, you do. We don't believe that the church is that. Like, an event that you attend, we believe that it's a family that you belong to. And this class is where the church goes from event to family. This is the, this is the door that you walk through for the church to go from an event to uh, family. In this class, we talk about all things the heights, the vision and values of the heights, what we're all about. We talk about what it looks like for you to belong here and grow as a disciple of Jesus here. I do about a 45 to 50 minute teaching on the beliefs of our church, what our church believes as a uh, historic Orthodox Christian church. Uh, so so that, that's there too. And a lot of people have questions about that. I mean, what does this church believe? And I do a teaching on that. And you know, it's not only like an information dumping session, but it's also a means of you meeting new people and uh, making friends. So we'll huddle up at tables. We'll do discuss fun discussions. We're not going to be like discussing my teachings on beliefs or anything. So don't get, it's like, what did you think about that teaching or whatever? It's going to be fun discussion. You're going to make some friends. Um, and uh, it's going to, we're going to have a lot of fun. So it's next week from 4 to 7 p.m. Uh, we provide child care and dinner. So we kind of took away all of the reasons that you wouldn't come. And, um, and it'll be next week. If you want to sign up, uh, go to our events page, theheightsdenver.com backslash events, and you can RSVP. You can sign up you, your roommates, your spouse, your uh, your kiddos, whatever, and would love for you to be there. Just FYI, we only offer this class four times a year, and so the next chance to attend it won't be until October. 
And so if you're, if you're here, like, man, I just push you, prioritize being there. Um, I, think, I think that you will really benefit from it, all right? Cool. So that's next week, uh, 4 to 7, sign up on the website. All right, grab a Bible, open it up to Mark 14. If you're new to the Bible, no worries. All of the scriptures that I'm going to be referencing today will be up here on the screen, so you can just pay attention to the screen. Now, today is a really big day in the life of our church because today is the start of us finishing our line-by-line study through the whole Gospel of Mark, okay? Yeah, which is awesome. Um, those, those of you who are clapping, you've probably been around the heights for a long time, and today is the beginning of the end. Um, we, so get this, get this, if you're new around here, you won't know this, but we kicked off our line-by-line study through the whole Gospel of Mark on February 10th, 2019. It feels like 1976. It feels like we've been in this forever. Um, But one of the values we have around here is having a balanced diet on our teaching. So here's what that means. Sometimes, sometimes we take a topic and we study a topic. So we just finished a whole teaching series on community in Romans 12, looking how Jesus shapes our relationships and community. But sometimes we just walk line by line through a book of the Bible and kind of let God, in some ways, set the agenda. It's like, whatever's next is what we're in next week. And so that's what we're going to be doing throughout the whole summer. We're going to be finishing the gospel of Mark. And man, uh, I'm really excited. We'll be studying halfway through 14, where we left off all the way through the end, through chapter 16. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And so you won't want to miss it. And I'm excited to press in and just uh, finish this out. Now, one of my favorite shows other than The Crown, so if you were here a couple weeks ago, I just want to apologize. I've been watching The Crown, and I totally screwed up my Crown reference a couple weeks ago, and none of you told me, okay? I needed to just be, like, rebuked from you. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how, like, my wife and I have been watching The Crown, which is great. It's on Netflix. You should go watch it, all that. But I called Prince Philip Prince Charles, and uh, afterwards, after everything, was, after everything was over, Anna pulled me to the side. Anna's the connector, and she goes, I didn't want to tell you between services, but like, you totally screwed that up. And I was like, why didn't you correct me? Because we had two services. I was like, why didn't you tell me? So I didn't look like a total idiot both times. Uh, Anyways, but one of my favorite shows, other than The Crown, is a show called The West Wing. Do we have any West Wing fans in here? Okay, yeah, the West Wing is fantastic. Here's what I believe. Uh, Jed Bartlett is the greatest president who never existed. He's fantastic. If Jed Bartlett was president uh, for the last five years, the country would be like experiencing revival. That's what I believe. Uh, the West Wing is fantastic. Um, and on the West Wing, they, they do something with every episode. Before the episode starts, they play a little bit of music, and they do this thing where it's like, dun-dun, last time on the West Wing. And they do like a little bit of a, a little bit of a review. Now, the reason they do that, I know that some of you may be, may be young enough that you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not quite sure. But the reason they do that is because when the West Wing came out, I know this is hard to believe, but they only released one episode per week on cable. And when there was a cliffhanger you had to wait a whole week until the next episode. Like, there was, like, no binge-watching, nothing, okay? And the reason they did this little, like, dun-dun last time on the West Wing is because, because of two reasons. Number one, uh, a little bit of time had passed since the last episode, right? A little bit of time had passed. Like, a whole week had passed. So you're like, man, I don't really remember what happened. Like, what's the storyline so far? And it kind of, like, refreshes you. Like, oh, yeah, 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 that's why I'm excited to watch the show. That's why I'm excited to dive back into the show. Uh, but the other reason is because uh, some of the people that are watching may be new to the show, 
and they may be like, man, I've, I've like never seen the West Wing. And what they're wanting to do is they're like, man, I, they're wanting you to kind of like understand in the st- what's going on in the story so that you can just dive in in the episode and be like really engaged in the episode. Now, what I want to do is I want to start with a little bit of dun-dun, last time in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and the reason that I want to do that is because uh, some of you are new. Uh, you know, a lot of you started coming while we were online, you found us online, you started watching online, and you have never heard a single one of our teachings out of the Gospel of Mark, okay? So some of you are new, and you need to kind of be caught up, because we're, we're jumping in in chapter 14 out of 16, okay? So I'm going to do a little bit of a, a speed uh, refresher. But, uh, but for others of us, like you, you've been around, you heard the Gospel of Mark, but you're like, man, it has been a long time since I heard a teaching in the Gospel of Mark. So I want to do a little bit of last time in the Gospel of Mark. So I'll do this, a little bit of review, and then we're going to dive in, and we're going to study the passage that Jessica read for us. So on February 10th, 2019, the very first day we dove in to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I said this line right here, we'll put it on the screen. The Gospel of Mark was written to show us what it looks like to follow King Jesus in the real stuff of everyday life. This is the purpose. This is the primary purpose of the gospel of Mark. This is the goal of this whole book of the Bible, to show us what it looks like to follow King Jesus in the real stuff of everyday life. This account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was written down by a guy named Mark, good job, guys. You guys are like with me, okay? But here's what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark. The the Gospel of Mark is not actually Mark's Gospel, okay? It was written down by a guy named Mark, but it's not actually Mark's Gospel. This is actually Peter's Gospel. Mark is the name of the scribe that Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, used to write down his account of Jesus' life, death, death and resurrection. So here's how it went down. Peter was probably over here. Mark was over here at some sort of little like first century desk, whatever that would have looked like. And uh, Peter was recalling his firsthand experiences of Jesus, of discovering who Jesus was, of his own personal failure as a disciple of Jesus, of his doubt as a disciple of Jesus. And as he was recounting all of these incredible stories, Mark was over here going, okay, 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 like I I got it, I got it, I got it. And Mark was writing down Peter's firsthand account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's what's cool about that for us. As we dive in and we study this book together, this is a personal account from Peter of his meeting Jesus for the very first time, of his, like, personal wrestlings with, like, these wild claims of Jesus, and him kind of going, man, like, do I believe that Jesus really is who he claims to be or not? And it's his like first count, firsthand account of him wrestling with these things. It's his firsthand account of him, and this is where we're going this summer, watching Jesus go to the cross and beginning to understand what the cross is all about and the resurrection of Jesus is all about. And it's his firsthand account of him trying to follow Jesus in the real stuff of everyday life. One of the themes in the Gospel of Mark, I'll unpack a few more themes later, is the failure of Peter. One of the things you'll see if you just went through and read this whole Gospel from beginning to end in one sitting, which is actually a really good thing for you to do. If, you wanna, if you're pretty hardcore and you want to do that this afternoon, it's kind of rainy outside, why not? 
Um, but one of the things you would see is that Peter's always failing. Peter's always like doubting Jesus. He's wrestling with these doubts about who Jesus is. He's always screwing up. You know, one of the things we'll get into in 14 through 16 is Peter like denying Jesus. He's like, I'm going to be with you, Jesus. And then you turn around and he like denies Jesus. And it's like, it's really this, this picture of what it looks like as a normal human being. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. Uh, I've got big time ups and downs in life, and sometimes I'm like all about Jesus. Sometimes I'm wrestling with doubts over here, and the same is true of Peter. And we're able to like kind of like walk beside Peter through the Gospel of Mark as he wrestles with the identity of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, all of this. Now, Peter, as he wrote this book of the Bible, had three primary themes that he intended for us to see as he gave us this firsthand account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this will hopefully serve as a little bit of review. I want to talk to you about these three themes really quickly, and then we will dive in. Number one, he wanted to give us a picture of Jesus' kingdom. In writing this gospel, he wanted to give us a picture of Jesus' kingdom. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth, the very first words that are spoken by Jesus in the gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, verse 15, are these words. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. If you pay attention to Jesus, Jesus is all about this thing called the kingdom of God. He's always talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. And Peter wants us to see that Jesus is a king who is bringing God's kingdom. Now, what in the world is the kingdom of God? Well, here's how we've defined it. It's the rule and reign of God where God gets his good and restorative way. That's what the kingdom of God is. So everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom of God goes. Now, the best way to think about the first nine, eight, really eight chapters of the gospel of Mark is Jesus going to his elementary school class and doing a little bit of show and tell about the kingdom of God. Okay, so just think about show and tell. Of course, he's telling people about the kingdom, right? He's always talking about the kingdom. He says it in Mark chapter one, verse 15. But what he's also doing is he's showing us what the kingdom is like. This is what Jesus's miracles are all about. Just think about this. Jesus's miracles in the gospels are always very purposeful. They always have a point, and the point is to show us what the world will be like when God gets his way in the world. Think about like what the kind of little things, miracles that uh, Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't like disappear here and pop up over there and go, ta-da! He doesn't like do the finger trick where he like, is like, watch this guys, I'm God. And he like takes his finger off and puts it back on and goes, ta-da, aren't you impressed? Jesus doesn't do miracles like that. Why? Well, because Jesus's miracles are all on purpose. They're all to show us what the kingdom of God is like, what it's like when God gets his way in the world. So what kind of miracles does he do? Well, he does miracles that are all restorative, right? He gives blind people sight. He helps crippled people walk. He helps deaf people hear. He speaks to demons that are doing destructive work in people's lives, and they tremble and they flee. That's what the kingdom of God is like. He speaks to, think about this, he speaks to nature, When nature is threatening to overtake his disciples in the boat, and they're freaking out, going, oh my gosh, we're going to die. 
what does Jesus do? He speaks to nature and he calms it, right? And he's going, this, I'm showing and telling the kingdom in the first eight chapters. I'm giving you a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the first eight chapters are all about. So number one, he wants to give us a picture of Jesus's kingdom. Number two, Peter wants to give us a picture of discipleship to Jesus. In these three chapters, we see, we see Peter confess Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one that the whole Old Testament has led up to. We see Jesus's glory revealed to Peter, James, and John as the divine one, God in the flesh in the transfiguration. And then Jesus, in these chapters, 8 through 10, does a lot of really practical teaching on discipleship and the real stuff of everyday life. He talks a whole lot about relationships and money and all kinds of things in these chapters. He's wanting to, uh, stick, he's wanting to give us a picture of what discipleship to Jesus looks like in the real stuff of everyday life. And then finally, he gives us a picture of Jesus's death and resurrection and talks about what it means for us. And this is what the last, really, third of the Gospel of Mark is all about. Now, here's what's wild. One-third of the Gospel of Mark is about the last week of Jesus' life. So when you get to chapter 11, things are going really, really quick, really, really quick, really, really quick. And then in chapter 11, it really slows down. And the reason it slows down is because Peter wants to spend a lot of time And wants to help us spend a lot of time thinking about what the cross and the resurrection are all about. So as we dive into chapters 14 through 16, we're going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what that means for us as disciples of Jesus in the real stuff of everyday life. And like I said, the goal in all of this is to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in kind of the wild reality that we live in outside of this room in the real stuff of everyday life. So we're studying chapters 14 through 16 this summer as we finish it out. And like I said, these, these chapters are all about the final days of Jesus, where, where we will look at the final time he spends with his disciples and kind of like some of the last minute teaching he squeaks in with his disciples before we go to the cross. We're going to look at his arrest, his trial, the cross, and finally his resurrection. So that's review. All right, so hopefully you're like, I'm basically a Mark scholar now. I know everything about the gospel of Mark, and we're going to dive into our teaching for today. So that's, dun-dun, last time in the gospel of Mark. Are you guys ready to dive in? All right, sorry, I know that was a lot, but I feel like, okay, we got the Jesus flowing. What's Mark all about? What's the purpose of this book? All that. So today, we tackle Mark 14, starting in verse 22, working through 25, where Jesus and his disciples go to the upper room and eat what is now known as the Last Supper, okay? Um, And uh, I'm just going to give you a fair warning. If you don't lean into this teaching, you're going to be totally lost, okay? Uh, This is not today what we would call lightweight Bible teaching. This is what we call heavyweight Bible teaching, but... Here's what I believe. I believe that you guys are ready for it. We got a lot of OT background, got to understand what's going on in the Old Testament to bring it into uh, what we're talking about today, but I believe in you. And here's what's really cool about this scene, though, that we're about to look at and, and study together. This scene is the first time that Jesus is going to explain why he has to die. So throughout the, throughout the whole Gospel of Mark, 
Jesus is making these really weird claims that none of his disciples understand where he's like, yeah, I know the following's great, but I'm going to die. I know the following's great, but I'm going to die. I know the following's great, but I'm going to die. Like over and over again, if you read the Gospel of Mark, he's saying this. But today is the first time that Jesus is going to try to help us understand why it is he has to die, what the cross is all about. Now, here's what's amazing about Christianity. Here's what's amazing about Christianity. If you're new to Christianity here, here I would just like lean in. Christianity says, at the heart of it all, that our salvation does not depend on us at all. Christianity says that our salvation does not depend on us at all. Here's what I mean by salvation. Like, we can be forgiven of all of the dumb things we've ever done. Wiped clean, slate clean. Our mess can be cleaned up. We can have God look down on us, not with disappointment or anything, but look down on us and smile with love. And then God will lead us and protect us every day of our lives. This is what we mean by salvation. And then we are promised in the future that God is going to make all things new, physically raise us from the dead, make this world new, and we get to be a part of it. This is what we mean by salvation. Now, here's the claim. None of that depends on us whatsoever. Like us getting to participate in those realities does not depend on us. Well, what does it then depend on? It depends on Jesus' work for us alone. Period. And us then trusting that his work was good enough. And that's it. This is what Christianity is all about. And this is what today's passage is all about. And here's the big question that's kind of hanging over this teaching and this passage. Will you trust Jesus to save you? That's it. Another way to ask the question is maybe, what are you trusting to save you? And if it's not Jesus, the claim is it's not going to work. Will you trust Jesus to save you? So we need to, before we dive into the passage, we need to look back at verses 12 through 16 of chapter 14 to get a little context for our passage today and to understand what this meal is that Jesus and his disciples are entering into this upper room to eat. So let's look at, these pa- let's look at this passage really quickly and let's kind of understand some of the context, okay? So here it is. This is uh, leading up to our passage for the day. Starting in verse 12, Mark 14. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice, keyword, the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare, keyword, the Passover, so that you may eat it? Verse 13, so he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Verse 14, wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the, keyword, Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, this is the upper room, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. Verse 15, 
So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared, key word, the Passover. So hopefully you get the point. The context of this meal is what? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Is the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples were coming into Jerusalem with all of these other Jewish pilgrims to celebrate this festival called Passover. Scholars say that in Jesus' day, the population of Jerusalem during this meal would swell from 30,000 to over 100,000 people that are coming to celebrate what's called the Passover meal. So here's the first question we should be asking. Okay, well, like, what is this Passover meal all about? What's the Passover meal all about? Because this is kind of the context that this meal that Jesus is going to celebrate uh, with his disciples is set in. Well, for ancient Jews and even Jews today, the Passover was an annual meal that commemorated like the defining moment in their history. It was a way of remembering and celebrating the key story of God's work for his people back in the Old Testament book of Exodus in chapter 12, what we now call the Exodus, where God delivers his people from slavery into freedom. You might be familiar with the story. It's the story, this is going to be so dumb, where it's like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. Like, that's the story. Okay, so just give you a little bit of context. Some of you were, thought that was funny. Some of you were like, I don't know if I can trust this guy at all anymore. <laughs> um, he just did a Pharaoh Pharaoh on the stage. But that's the story. Here's how, here's how the story goes, okay? Here's how the story goes. God's people, back in the book of Exodus, had been trapped in darkness and bondage as slaves in Egypt. And their lives were miserable. Basically, they were born to serve Pharaoh and his purposes and die. And they had no freedom, no purpose, only misery. And God, being God, looked at his people and loved them and felt compassion for them. And he was working to set his people free through a key character, a guy in the Old Testament, a guy named Moses. And he had sent Moses to Pharaoh over and over again. And Moses would say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, won't you let my people go? And the the story goes, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he said, no, I'm not going to let your people go. I'll never let your people go. And God starts to send what are called plagues on on the land of Egypt. And you might be familiar with these plagues. So he sends all of these plagues on Egypt with the purpose that Pharaoh would be like, fine, like, I'll let your people go. But the problem was Pharaoh would not listen. Over and over again, Moses goes, plague comes. Moses goes, plague comes. And Pharaoh goes, I'll never let your people go, God. They're never leaving the bondage I have them in. They serve my purposes, not yours. I'm not letting them go. So finally, God warns of a final plague. It's the most serious of the plagues, and it's the plague of death that would come on the firstborn of every single home in the land. God says, if you don't let my people go, I will send the plague of death, and the firstborn of every home will die. But God tells the people that there's a way out from this plague. There's a way out from the plague. And the way out was to put your faith or your trust into God's sacrificial provision, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, God told them that if they would kill a lamb, 
the Passover lamb, and they would paint the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, over the doorposts of their home, and they would take shelter under the blood of the lamb. When the plague of death came, it would pass over them and they would live. So that night, there would either be a dead firstborn or a dead lamb in every house in Egypt. This is the context of the story. Either the plague of death would fall on your family, or you would take shelter under the substitute, the blood of the lamb. And if you did accept the shelter, then death passed over you and you would be saved. This is why this story is called the Passover, right? Now, don't miss this. In the Exodus story, way back at the beginning of the Bible, the people were saved based on their trust in God's substitutionary sacrifice, the Passover lamb. Way, way, way back there. Way back at thousands of years before Jesus. They were saved by their trust in God's substitutionary sacrifice. By, the blood, by taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And the way the story of Israel, God's people, goes from there, four things happened for those who trusted in the blood of the Lamb. And this is the remainder of the Exodus story. Number one, they were delivered from the plague of death. They didn't die. Number two, they were set free from their bondage. And you remember the story where like, God miraculously splits the Red Sea and the people of Israel walk through, the, walk through the waters and escape their bondage to Egypt and start their journey to the Promised Land. Number three, they were given renewed relationship with God. For these people, they hadn't heard God speak in a long time, but now they go through the Red Sea, they find themselves in the wilderness, and all of the sudden, God is showing up and he's speaking to them personally. He's leading them by like pillar of cloud during the day and pillar of fire by night. He's providing for them when they're hungry, the manna. He's, he's providing for them when they're thirsty, the water comes out of a rock, and you just see in all of these things, they have this like vibrant, though they complain a lot, so I'm not missing that part of the story, this new vibrant relationship with God. And the cool thing about that, by the way, is that the people are terrible the whole time. Like they do, they do nothing but complain, and God does nothing but love them. It's like unbelievable. This just shows us the faithfulness of God and what God is like. And number four, they began their journey to the promised land. And the, and the story of Exodus is really this beautiful story of God's love for his people in providing this way out of judgment, out of the plague, providing salvation for his people. So each year, from this time forward, God's people would remember and celebrate this salvation and deliverance to new life through a meal and a festival called the Passover meal. And whenever they would come together and they would, um, they would partake in this Passover meal, it's much more complicated than what I'm about to tell you, but they had three basic elements in the Passover meal. First, they would sacrifice what is called the Passover lamb. And the main course, don't miss this, this is going to be important for looking at this meal with Jesus and his disciples in just a second. The main course was the lamb. And they remembered as they were eating this lamb, they were remembering and celebrating God delivered us through the sacrificial lamb. It's like we're not going to forget God's a deliverer. God's our savior. We're eating the lamb. 
The second thing they would do is four times throughout this meal, they would drink a cup of wine. And they would remember we were saved by the blood of the lamb that was painted over the doorpost. The Passover happened because of the blood of the lamb. And the wine represented the blood of the lamb. Had to be a good meal. That's a lot of wine, folks. Okay? I'm like, goodness, four cups? All right. Wow. Getting wild, right? Getting wild, celebrating Passover, all right? So they would do the wine. They would four times throughout the meal drink a, drink a glass of wine, remembering the blood of the lamb. And then finally, they would eat unleavened bread. They would eat unleavened bread, and they would, uh, they would remember this, this represented God's provision for them in the wilderness of the manna. And they would remember God's not only, sorry, I'm about to trip over the TV. God's not only our Savior and Deliverer, but He's our provider along the way. And they would just sing, they would sing and celebrate and pray prayers of blessing. And it was like this joyful meal so that they didn't forget what God was like and who God was. And every year they did this because the people of God, just like us, they're always forgetful of who God is when they get in the real stuff of everyday life. Now, we can take a deep breath. This is the meal that Jesus and his disciples gather to eat in verses 22 through 26. They're gathering to eat the Passover meal together. And listen, as faithful Jews, as the faithful people of God, they would have done this every single year from the time they were like, this big. And they knew all the parts of the meal. They knew what it represented. And this is the context that Jesus begins to, uh, begins to lead in his disciples in, in this meal. But here's what happens. As Jesus begins to lead his disciples in this meal, things get weird. And Jesus does a Jesus thing and goes rogue from almost every tradition that these disciples would have known. And the way he does it, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you the answer, and then I'm going to show it to you in scriptures. The way he does it is he says, hey, I know that you think that this meal points back, way back there in the book of Exodus. I know you think that this meal is about like the, the old Exodus story, but what you need to realize is that now this meal is about me, baby. This is what he's going to do. So let's look at the scripture together and understand what Jesus does. They come together. They go up into the upper room. It's probably kind of like a moment of celebration for them. The Passover meal is here. And then we enter into verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread. And they're, remember, they're expecting Remember God is our provider. Remember he provided for, the for his people in the wilderness. But what does Jesus do? Blessed it and broke it. Gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Now for us, especially if you've been around the church, we're like, yeah, it's his body. Of course. We do this every week. Yeah. But the disciples, like, the disciples would have been like, literally, oh my God, what is he doing? Literally. What is he doing? They would have been freaking out. They knew this meal, forwards and backwards, and Jesus is doing something different. But then it gets more weird. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so before we talk about what all of this means, I want you to just put yourself in the scene. Like, imagine how shocked and confused Jesus' disciples were. They were like, whoa, 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 that blood, I mean, that wine represents blood. What is he, what's he saying? That's weird. That's weird. Jesus going like, this bread and this wine, it no longer points backwards, but it points now forward to me. He says, this bread is about me. This wine is about me. And if Jesus talking about his body and blood over a meal isn't weird enough, just imagine that. You're like, that's freaking me out. I don't know if I want to drink the wine, you know? If that's not weird enough, something else is weird about this meal. And the disciples would have noticed this too. You see, all Passover meals would have had bread, right? And Jesus holds up the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. All Passover meals would have had wine and Jesus holds up the cup of wine. But at this Passover meal the main course was missing. And the disciples would have been really confused about this the whole time. They would have been like, where's the, where's the main course? And if you look at all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, in all four accounts, the main course is missing. And the disciples would have been probably confused about this in the moment. They're, they're like, what, what's going on? Like, the, the lamb is missing. Where's the lamb? There's no lamb on the table. Like, for them... This is such a lame descriptor, but it would be like me inviting you over to have burgers at my house on my incredible Kamado Joe grill, plug, love Kamado Joe. I invite you to come over and have burgers, and you arrive, and it's like, we've got chips and guac, we've got potatoes, we sit down for dinner, and you're like, where are the burgers? You invited me over for burgers. It's like me inviting you over for tacos, and we've got the rice and beans, we got chips and guac. We always have ch chips and guac at our house. It's like <laughs> Italian night, chips and guac. Yeah. It's like you arrive and the, the thing's missing. And I just wish I could be a fly on the wall in that room with Jesus and his disciples. Because the disciples probably started out really confused, but as Jesus starts to talk about the bread being his body and the wine representing his blood, they, they probably started to put two and two together and they, started to, they probably started to realize the, the reason the lamb's not on the table is because the lamb is at the table. And Jesus is doing a whole new thing here. And the point is, and the point that would have started to dawn on the disciples in this moment and the point that's supposed to dawn on us is that Jesus is showing the disciples and us that he is the new and better Passover lamb 
whose body was given and blood would be shed so that we could experience a new and better exodus where Jesus delivers us from the penalty for our sin, death, into new resurrection life with God. This is Jesus in this meal preparing his disciples and preparing us to understand what's going to happen as he goes to the cross. That this is the plan of God to save the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was born to take away the sin of the world. Just as, don't miss this, this is so wild, guys. Just as the first Passover lamb The first Passover was celebrated the night before God would deliver his people through the death of the lambs, plural. This Passover is being observed the night before God would deliver the world from sin and death through the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in this passage. And it's so beautiful, like all of the things that Jesus is showing us that his life, death, and resurrection now mean for us. This is why... In John 1, when John the Baptist, old JTB, he looks at Jesus and he points at him and he says, behold, he's talking to the crowds, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew. He goes, this is the one that has been born to die. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians, he he says, we can rejoice and be free because Christ, our Passover lamb, has died. All over the Bible, you see, everything is pointing up to Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the way that God would deliver the world from its greatest enemies, Satan, sin, hell, and death forever. So right here is where the purpose of Jesus' cross is coming into view. And there are four things that we're supposed to see in this meal. I'm going to give them to you relatively quickly. Four things that we're supposed to see in this Passover meal. Number one, we're supposed to see this, that through trust in Jesus, we are delivered from the plague of death. Through trust in Jesus, we are delivered from the plague of death. Romans 6.23, later in the New Testament, says this, the penalty of sin is death. Here's why people die. Because we have all rebelled against God and are riddled with sin. But in Christ, we see the love of God. We see that Jesus is the Passover lamb who sacrifices himself as our substitute, dies the death that we deserve for our sin in our place so that we can receive the gift of life. Through Jesus, we are delivered from the plague of death. Here's the really blunt way to say it. Here's the really blunt way to say it. At the end of the day, your sins will be paid for. Either by Jesus, the Passover lamb, or by you, and you get to choose. And so which one will you choose? Will you hide yourself under your own accomplishments, trying to make the most of your life, or will you hide yourself under the blood of the lamb and be delivered from the plague of death? The choice is yours, and you can turn and believe today. You can You can hide yourself by trusting in the blood of the Lamb and you will be delivered from the plague of death. Death will not have the final say over you. Jesus will and he will raise you from the dead physically to live forever with him. This is all through this Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. Now before I move on, I just want to say this. I'll come back to this. But I know if you're here and you're like, man, I'm exploring Jesus. I don't know if I would consider, consider myself a Christian. Um, 
I know that it's a process to get here where I'm like, I'm hiding myself under the blood of the lamb. I believe this stuff. I know it's a process. But would you just consider it? Would you just consider it? Maybe this is true. Billions of people have believed this to be true throughout the history of the world. Will you hide yourself under the blood of the lamb? I'll talk about how to do that here in a few minutes. Number two, this meal shows us that through trust in Jesus, we are set free from the bondage to sin. We're set free from the bondage of sin. The way we like to call, the way we like to talk about sin around here at the Heights is that sin is just our own self-destruction. And it's like, when you live out of line with the way God created the world and the way God created life to be lived, of course it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt relationally. It's going to hurt emotionally. It's going to hurt mentally. It's going to hurt. This is why our world is broken. But through Jesus, we can be set free from this self-harm. Through Jesus, we can be given a new heart that desires the things of God. He can give you a new heart and a new life. A life marked by freedom and joy. This is the picture we get in the Exodus as as God's people leave the land of Egypt, are delivered through the Red Sea and start their journey. They start living in life of God. They're freed from their bondage. They're freed from their captivity. Through through trust in Jesus, we're set free from the bondage of sin. Number three, through trust in Jesus, we're given a a renewed relationship with God. Through Jesus, we're given a renewed relationship with God. This is what it's all about. Most people, whenever they think of Christianity, they uh, they think only of point number two, that when I become a Christian, I just stop doing bad things. And it's like, if that's what being a Christian is, that sucks. Like, that is just totally empty. Christianity is not only freedom from the negative, it's freedom to the positive. And what's the, and the positive is like 98% of it. Number two is like 2% of it. Number three is like 98% of it. Through trust in Jesus, we're given a renewed relationship with God. You just think of the Exodus story where God begins to meet his people again personally, where he begins to speak to his people again personally. He starts to lead them in a pillar of cloud, and a pillar of fire. He starts, to, he starts to provide for them. This is what God wants to do for you through Christ. He wants to lead you not like just out of bad things, which is part of it. I don't want to dismiss that. He wants to lead you into new, renewed, life-giving, vibrant relationship with the living God who wants to speak to you personally from his word. He wants to provide for you tangibly when you're like, I don't know which way to go, left or right. He wants to lead you in that. Through Jesus, we're given a renewed relationship with God. And number four, through trust in Jesus, we're given the hope of eternal life with God. The hope of Christianity is not some disembodied, uh, floating around on the clouds, you're going to get your own harp uh, and play it for eternity. Again, that doesn't sound fun to me. And I don't know if I want to say this, this is not my notes. I don't even know if God could redeem that for me. (laughs) 
take that for take that take that with a grain of salt. He probably could. But the hope of Christianity, the hope of Jesus, the resurrected one, is not some disembodied heaven where we're going to float off and float on clouds and play, play harps. The hope of Christianity is an embodied physical resurrection where God is going to come and he's going to fully bring about his kingdom. Remember what the kingdom of God is like? It's like where everyone gets healed, where there are no tears anymore, where death doesn't have the final say. This is what is in our future through trust in the blood of the Lamb. This is our, make this connection, promised land. That God is going to come and he is going to make all things new and through the death and resurrection, all people are being invited in, no matter your religious background, no matter what mistakes you've made in life, God can make everything in your life new. He can totally forgive you of all of the sins that you've ever committed, even the things you think, oh my gosh, if God knew about this, he knows and he's extending you grace in the person of Christ and he's saying, will you come and will you trust in the blood of the Lamb? Now I want to apply this on two levels as we close. I'm glad the music's playing because I got a lot I want to say. I want to apply this at two levels. I want to speak to those of you who wouldn't consider yourselves Christians and then those of you who do. Um, One of the things you see in this passage is that God is nothing like we often imagine him to be. We often imagine God to be really stingy and really mean and kind of mad at us. And so we all carry around this low-grade guilt for all the things we do. And then we try to clean it up. Maybe we come to church a couple times a year, make the guilt go away. But that's not how God works. God, God is different than we imagine to be. What you see is that he is the one who loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone, keyword, everyone who believes in him would be saved. So here's what that means for you if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. God wants you. It not only means that God wants you, it means he's for you. And this passage is an invitation. Will you, maybe you're not ready to trust in the blood of the lamb today. Maybe you're not ready for that. But will you at least commit to exploring it? Not just dismissing it after you Google, like, why should I not trust in Jesus? But like, exploring it. Come to us. We'll give you resources. We'll give you books to read. We'll we'll help you read the scriptures. And so the first action that's required out of this is just receive. Will you receive Jesus? And we hate religious pushiness around here. That is so gross and it doesn't work. So we won't ever, we never want to come across as like religious pushiness, but we do believe this stuff. We do believe that one day every person's sins will be paid for, either by them or by Jesus. And there's this open invitation to everyone in the world to come and hide under Jesus. And so like, it's like, will you receive Jesus? If you want to do that, If you want to do that, we want to help you. I know it can be intimidating to move around in this space, so I want to give you kind of like the least intimidating way I know how 
You can grab one of those cards out of the seat back, fill it out. But I want to talk to somebody about following Jesus. Take it to the Connection Center down in the lobby right after. I'll be down there. Hand it to me. I'm not going to corner you with questions or anything. We're just going to go, hey, like, what questions do you have? Can we listen? How can we help? No pushiness. Receive Jesus. Receive Jesus. Um, number two, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, it's just rest. One of the things that we said at the very beginning that this passage shows us is that the good news of Christianity means that our salvation does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on what we do, what we don't do. It depends on our trust in Jesus, even like the most feeble little trust in Jesus. Saved forever. I think God's going to come in and supply belief along the way. And so the way I want to invite you to rest is through observing this meal, communion. We got stations in each of the corners, two in the back, two right up here. And through this meal, we're just, I just want to invite you to, to fall onto Jesus, the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. Meaning, not by what you do or don't do, but by what Jesus has done in your place. You've been delivered from judgment forever. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means zero, nada, none. That's awesome. Rest in that. You've been given a new heart to desire the things of God. You've been renewed in your relationship with God. You have access through your great high priest. You have the hope of eternal life where we're going to eat this meal with Jesus when he makes all things new. And so I just want to invite you to take this meal during the song and rest. In the words of Jesus, it is finished. The work is done. All that's left to do is receive it and cherish it and rest in it and be thankful that this isn't some religious game we're playing. We know Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is slain in our place and has been raised from the dead. He's defeated all of our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, hell, and death. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to respond. Jesus, we invite you to come and have your way. Whatever you have planned, we invite you to, to do it. Um, we believe that we believe that the enemy is real. And so I just pray against the work of the enemy on, this back, on the back end of the service that he would have no dominion in this place, but Holy Spirit, you would have freedom to do whatever it is you want to do. That you would remind us of the good news of our salvation through the Passover lamb, you, Jesus. That you would give us soft hearts and that are ready to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond as the Lord leads us.